Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13. grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account For the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that as we come again to hear it preached, that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you know the book of 1 Peter in chapter 3, you know that I stopped right before it got really hard. That next passage, I just briefly looked at some commentaries on the next passage, and they're all like, eh, not sure what that means. So um, this is this is the one uh, where uh, Noah's brought up and Jesus preaching to spirits in prison, and, and uh, we'll get there in three or four weeks from now, after I've had time to study it. Uh, no, I'll, I'll try to get to it sooner than that. But, um, but we have these first six verses of this latter half of chapter three. And let's begin here. Job's You remember Job, you remember Job's suffering. Uh, It's written large in the book of Job. Job's friends, you also remember them, uh, consistently told him that he was suffering because he had sinned. And his suffering was as a result of particular sins that he had committed. One of Job's friends, Eliphaz, says, I will tell you, listen to me. And what I have seen, I will also declare what wise men have told and have not concealed from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days, and numbered are the years stored up for the ruthless. So that's Eliphaz counseling Job in Job's suffering, saying it's the wicked man that writhes in pain as Job is writhing in pain, right? Scraping the, the wounds with, with clay pots and, 
and crying out to God. So what is implied in Eliphaz's words is that it is the wicked who suffer in this life and Job is suffering because of some wicked deed or some number of wicked deeds that he had done. But we know more than Eliphaz did, right? Because we have scripture and so we get the zoomed back view of what's happening in the book of Job, right? We, we have the whole story. Why was Job suffering? He was suffering because he was righteous, He was suffering because of his righteousness, not because of any wickedness, though he was a man like everybody else and had committed sins, right? Job 1.6 teaches us this. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? You know, and we think, that is mean. Why would God do that? Why would God throw Job under the bus? Right? Have you considered my servant Job? And then he says, for there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. And then it's kind of like, okay, God's really saying that Job, Job is a faithful man and whatever you do to him, Satan, ain't going to touch him, right? And so that passage, though, it establishes that the righteous indeed suffer in this life. The righteous, the blameless are the ones who suffer in this life and that God is not only aware of that suffering, but he superintends that suffering. Right now, one of the, one of the ways Christians suffer in this life is um, because they fear God and fearing God, they intend to do right, even if it causes some vicious kind of blowback. Right? Of course, it should go without saying that Christians also suffer because they sin, right? We can't take that off the table. That's one of the causes of great suffering for us. When we stray from God's commands and suffer for doing what is wrong, we should in no way be surprised. That's an easy one. When we are surprised, though, is when we do what is right and we are persecuted or we're rejected or we lose a job or we suffer in some tangible way. Right? At the end of the day, uh, of a day like that, we are left scratching our heads and wondering about whether God really cares for us. Does he really care for us? Is he really there? Is he there watching over me to care for me? We're left to think that Psalm 1's statement that a believer's leaf does not wither and whatever he does, he prospers, is somehow not playing out for me. Right? The words of Jeremiah 29.11 seem like a taunt to us. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And we think God's taunting us. And the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, is helping us work through that tension that we feel, right? If we feel it at all, right? He's trying to encourage Christians to persevere when the world seems to be against them. He's trying to give, he's trying to give us hope. 
is what he's trying to do. He writes, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And we think to ourselves, well, honestly, a lot of people will do me harm if I prove myself zealous for God's laws. A lot of people. Uh, For the standards that are written about in Scripture, for announcing that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ, right? A man who who rose from the dead, that that will lead to all kinds of people feeling the necessity to harm me. But of course, he means by asking that question to make us have the right perspective. It is the perspective that Jesus made clear to the apostles, right? That perspective of Jesus. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. Don't fear those who are telling you you're worse than Beelzebul. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. Right? So in other words, though the world may be unhappy with us and determined to silence our witness, better that than to have God against you. Right? Better that than to have God against you. In fact, there is no comparison because of the relative power of the two. Man can kill the body, but has no ability to afflict the soul. God, though, has power over both body and soul. And, and after an eternity after this life, we will finally realize how important that is. We will finally have our wits about us when it comes to the shortness of this life. Right? The Apostle Paul, Peter, did it again. Apostle Peter goes on, he says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Well, how so? How so? How how are we blessed if we suffer for the sake of righteousness? Well, God guards your soul, though your body may suffer. Right? God watches over you, though the, the world and your family and your friends have forsaken you, turned their back upon you but God still watches over you. Or to put it another way, Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the strength of my heart. Peter brings in the Old Testament here for encouragement. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah chapter 8. In that chapter, Isaiah is announcing that God intends to bring Assyria upon Israel to punish them for their sins. And the people are going about, they're, they're kind of losing their minds. The people are losing their minds. They're talking about conspiracies, right? They're, they're um, resisting the announcements of the prophets and rather listening to conspiracy theories. And then we read this from which this quote in First Peter comes. You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. 
And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. Then he will become your sanctuary. He shall be your dread. He shall be your fear. And then he will become your sanctuary. In other words, this is, this is the same message of Jesus to the apostles. Don't go about listening to conspiracy theories and fearing man. Fear God. Right then, in fearing God, God becomes a sanctuary to us. And having sanctuary in God is the only way to face a hostile world, right, without despair. That's the only way to, to say, well, I may not have anything else, but I have God as my portion. So we're to take refuge in God. And, and Peter says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's how Peter puts that sanctuary, that refuge Fix your hearts on Christ as Lord, as sovereign ruler, as king, that you may enter into that peaceful sanctuary of having something beyond the temporal, something beyond the visible to encourage you. Enter into life with God and walk through the difficulties of this life, however heavy, with hope, even with joy, right? And so we do as we live with God as a sanctuary, God as our sanctuary. As we do that, we will not only persevere through the hostility that comes to us because of our faith in God, we will be bold and through, you know, um, we'll be bold. We'll be able to face hostility and be bold and courageous even in the face of that. We will not be silenced. Right? But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You know, the, the word that is translated defense is that word apologia, an apology, apologia in the Greek. It, it means to be ready to give an explanation, to make an argument, to make a speech in support of your faith. Right? It means to be ready to explain what you believe. That's what it means. That defense means to be able to explain what you believe. It means to be ready to look your college professor in the eye after a lecture on Darwin's theory of evolution and say, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And then his face will explode in front of you. Right? It means to argue with the atheist and the materialist about the origin of everything. It means to point to the glory of God's creation and say that creation leaves every man without an excuse as they go on suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It means to laugh, a belly laugh, when some expert tells you that over the course of billions of years, all of these irreducibly complex parts of our bodies, like our eyes, just happen to happen. Right? It means to take up the shield of faith and extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It means that as Christians, we stand our ground. Right? We make arguments that the world thinks are foolishness, and that is precisely what they are. They are foolishness. They are, they are 
foolhardy and foolishness, but they are better foolishness than the world's foolishness, right? Because they are the foolishness of God. And we'll take that any day. So are you ready to make that defense? Are you ready to to make a defense? There is only one thing that will leave you unprepared to make that defense. It's not ignorance. It's not a lack of a PhD in apologetics. The only thing that will lead you, will leave you unprepared and speechless when accusations come against you is this. You're ashamed of the gospel. You're ashamed of it. It's, it's living for weaklings. And you'll be ashamed of it. Now, honestly, what man is not ashamed of the gospel? What man is not ashamed of the gospel? Uh, The apostle Paul had to proclaim that he wasn't ashamed of the gospel, which proves he was ashamed of the gospel. I will not be ashamed of the gospel. Right? Because why, why are we ashamed of the gospel? Because it's to love the weak. It's to love the weak. It is to admit one's own weakness. It's to admit that we're helpless and we need a Savior. That is the last thing any man or woman wants to admit. Right? The world goes about boasting in her strength, boasting in her inevitably glorious future that comes about through her, you know, the the brotherhood of man and their common pursuits. But the Christian... The Christian goes about saying, I'm weak. The Christian comes to service every Sunday and gets on his knees and confesses his sins. Weak, 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 weak. Right? And so we just go, we go about from one thing to the next proclaiming our weakness. It is, in a sense, shameful. Christianity is shameful. Right? Our hero died while being insulted and did nothing about it. Right? That, that's not a Greek hero. That's not a Roman uh, war hero. That's not how our heroes are supposed to go. Our hero died and he's being spat upon. Right? Our hero was spat upon and then asked God to forgive those who spat upon him taking it even a step further. And our hero's followers, well, here's what one said. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in what? Weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses. I am perfectly fine with insults, right? With distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Power is perfected in weakness. That, dear brothers and sisters, is the kind of shameful 
shameful, foolish teaching of Scripture. Right? Nietzsche despised such weakness and ended up a shriveled up insane man. Right? That, that is what happens when someone has their mind so fixed on the world. He defies this world and the humans in this world. The Christian, though, understands God's word that man is weak, is made, is dependent, is in need of saving, is, in a nutshell, just dust, made of dust. And the strength of the, the ubermensch is, in God's economy, the ultimate weakness. Right? So we go around testifying to and boasting in our weakness, which means to exalt the one Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our strength. Notice that even the way we testify to our weakness is to be done with gentleness and reverence. Even the way we testify to our weakness is supposed to be weak. We can't get up in people's grills. We can't get violent. We can't force our views on others. All we can say is, look, once I was blind and now I can see. It makes no sense to violently testify to a theology of weakness, does it? It makes also no sense to irreverently testify to the fear of God, does it? <laughs> I mean, that would be to have no fear of God. So we have our boasts in God and not in our muscles, not in our intellect, not our philosophy, not our wealth. We have Christ and Him crucified. That's it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The apostle Peter goes on after exhorting us to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. He in verse 16 writes, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Right? We're to make a defense of our faith when necessary and we are to behave in keeping with the word of God. In other words, our testimony without our lives supporting our testimony would have little weight. Right? We all know that, that terrible feeling of hypocrisy. Right? When we testify to something, but then we live contrary to what we just testified to. Calvin says on this verse, For we see that many are sufficiently ready with their tongue and prate much very freely and yet with no fruit because their life doesn't correspond to their confession. What a curse it is to be golden-mouthed apologist who can't love his own children. Right? What a curse it would be to be a published author teaching others when our own children are left untaught. What a curse it would be to be called an expert when your wife knows you're not. Right? 
This should not be, and when it is, we should get things in order, brothers and sisters. What a curse it is to call for the end of abortion when we ourselves are indulging in sexual sin. Calvin again says, The defense of the tongue will avail but little except the life corresponds with it. Your words will have no power unless your life undergirds that witness. And so we're to pursue a good conscience. It should be that the only accusation someone can make against you is slander. The only accusations they could bring against you should just always have to be slander because they have to be made up. Right? The only thing they should be able to say about you would have to be a lie. There should be no hidden aspects of our lives that if discovered could be pointed to to discredit our witness. But honestly, those who hate Christians will revile us not for our bad behavior, but they will revile us for our good behavior. Right? They will hate us for seeking to protect babies in the womb. They will hate us for, for breeding. They will hate us for uh, our view of marriage. They'll hate us for our, our view of biology and the sexes. They will hate us precisely where we are righteous. And yet, if we sin, and we all do, living precisely as they do and as they believe, they'll still use that as an opportunity to discredit us and slander our Savior. But, and and this is where the apostle goes, much better to be slandered than to prove the truth of what an enemy says about us. Much better to be slandered. Right? The apostle writes, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Our suffering should come about because we are pursuing righteousness rather than pursuing our flesh or ourselves. Persecution for righteousness rather than ridicule for unrighteousness and hypocrisy should be the cause of our suffering. Pursuit of righteousness should be the cause of our suffering. How often, though, is that the case? Have we stood our ground with employers or co-workers and friends and family when it comes to defending the faith? Not often, I fear. Not often, even though we are assured in this passage that should we suffer in that manner, it will be the will of God. Now let me digress a little bit. The context for Peter's letter is suffering persecution, doing what is right when the world is against you. There is also a sense in, in general in which we should embrace suffering. Um, So often we are tempted to live this life so that we can go from one joy to the next. But that is not possible in a fallen world. We we have to embrace suffering as a common condition. And we, we must embrace it so that when suffering comes, we don't become embittered against God. And insist, and, and then begin insisting to God that my drunkenness is my due. God, you owe it to me. This life is miserable. I will drink. Right? So often we just, we just want to get high so that we don't have to suffer. There are a thousand ways to get high. I'm not just talking about drug use. We just want to escape. We want to get high. We want to 
We want to escape to something. And it's because we don't want to suffer, whether that suffering is loneliness, whether that suffering is physical pain, whether it's just the, the hurt of losses. This escapism, this resorting to drunkenness is to reject suffering as the will of God. It is in coming to terms with the fact that suffering is the will of God that we are then able to suffer well, to persevere in suffering without the aid of what Scripture calls sin. There's much more I could say about that, but I'm, I'm going to move on. Verse 18. Once again, as he does throughout this whole letter, the apostle goes to Jesus Christ as the example. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What if Jesus had not embraced suffering? What if Jesus had not considered suffering to be the will of God? Well, our redemption would not have occurred. No one would be saved. When we consider the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have to come to terms with the fact that the righteous suffer, right? If we have no grid for that, then the cross simply becomes a father abusing his son. If you think about it, the most righteous man that ever lived has suffered more than any other man who has ever lived. To endure the unmitigated wrath of God the Father on the cross is suffering on a scale no one has ever had to endure or could endure. The worst torture, the worst losses, the worst disease is not suffering when compared to the Holocaust of the cross. Right, The punishment of every sin ever committed by God's elect by a God who perfectly abhors sin with a cold and unwavering justice. That's unendurable by a mere man. Christ, though, bore that wrath, the just for the unjust, him for us. So if we have no room for suffering in this life, we have no room for the atonement of Jesus Christ. And think of the fruitfulness of suffering. Think of the fruit that's born by suffering. Our suffering sanctifies us, causes uh, causes us, if we are in our right mind, to cry out to God. Right? Christ's suffering was cosmically fruitful. Cosmically fruitful. It It will continue to bear fruit. One commentator writes, it is understandable when Christians find it perplexing that the God of love will, wills them at times to suffer for righteousness. That perplexity should be removed when believers consider the passion, the, the crucifixion of Christ and its blessed results. The death of Christ did not result in destruction, but in our salvation and in his exaltation. As God wills our suffering for wise and loving purposes and sanctifies us through our afflictions, so also he ordained the aging, aging sufferings of his son with positive ends in view. The death of Christ was not a random and tragic incident, but a divinely ordered transaction. Suffering given to the son from the father. 
So your suffering, particularly your suffering because you testify to Christ and back up that testimony with a life lived to his glory, is a divinely ordered transaction. Your suffering for your faith is without question your most potent way to witness for your faith. Your suffering is your witness, just as Jesus' suffering was his. Isaac Watts' great hymn text, Am I a Soldier of the Cross?, Ask the right question, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? Right? While others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. We want, we want to be carried to the skies. We want to, we want to get to heaven on flowery beds of ease. Never anywhere promised to us in the scripture. Right? Never anywhere promised to us in the scripture. The answer is you will not be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease no more than Christ was. Your path to heaven and rest in that eternal Sabbath is through suffering. May that suffering be because of your faith, not because of your sin. And may that suffering be sweet to you because it, it will keep you from sin and it will make your Savior precious to you. That suffering, the very suffering he gives you, will make you love him as it keeps you from sin, as it keeps you from, from uh, making shipwreck of your faith. Amen?